Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. If you ever was a devil bought that in harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the brand new seasonless, unseasoned, unflavored, unscented podcast. Do I sound better? I hope I sound better because uh, I bought a new mic setup and it took me a long time to figure out how to use it. An embarrassingly long time, in fact. Uh, but in theory, I should have better sound quality now. So now you can uh, experience the rich, deep fullness of my obnoxious grating voice directly in your ear holes. I think it's an improvement over what I had before, but uh, when we're talking about my voice, improvement is highly subjective. Anyway, I've been tinkering with ideas on what I want the show to be like going forward, and I'm still early with this podcasting stuff, still new to it. I only have like 30 subscribers so far, which is amazing. I love every single one of you, but uh, it's not enough people that I'm worried about upsetting the boat by doing a format change, you know? And besides, you early subscribers are like, OG, right? You're the hardest core of hardcore fans. Such as fandom is for this bizarre show that doesn't even really have an overall topic other than whatever one writer who nobody's ever heard of was thinking about on her daily walks. Yeah. So all that's to say, a lot of things have changed recently in my life in surprising ways. Changes for the better, I hope. But that remains to be seen. And the format and distribution of this show is one of those changes. One of the main changes I'm making is that I'll still be doing interviews with some interesting people, and I hope some really cool outsider artists, but less often. And I'll be doing more kind of personal story stuff, since that seems to be what my listeners respond to most positively, and frankly, it's uh, easier to do anyway, requires a lot less scheduling for one thing. And I'm a big fan of doing relatively easier things instead of harder things. You can blame my Taurus nature if you're into astrology. I'm not, really, which is maybe the most Taurus thing of all to say. Anyway, this is the new and possibly improved future saint of a new era, and I'm still Libby Grant. biggest change that's coming from your perspective, dear listener, I'm not going to do seasons anymore. I just, uh, don't want to. <laughs> and I was bad at it anyway, so fuck that, you know? From now on, I'm just going to do seasonless episodes that come out when there's something I want to talk about. I'm going to try very, very hard to do an episode every other week, so you'll get two a month. But there might be sometimes when I can't keep up with that schedule, if I've got a lot of other stuff going on in my life, but if that happens, I'll give you a heads up and let you know when I expect to return. Otherwise, expect me every other week-ish, when I'll be talking about literally whatever was on my mind at the time. It might be something related to current events, it might be something related to my work, it might be totally random shit that was triggered by something I saw on YouTube or what I ate for lunch. I don't know. It's pure Libby brain vomit, which is more fun than, like, actual vomit, I guess. On alternate weeks, I'll be bringing out my new multimedia project, which I'm very excited about sharing with the world and which I talked about at the end of season two. As a refresher, this ongoing project is going to be called Selfie on the Edge of Forever, and it'll combine video I've shot with found footage, found audio, remixed and sampled audio, and some animation I'm producing with the help of AI into a kind of offshoot of this podcast, like little mini episodes of Future Saint that'll have a visual component to them. And spoiler alert, a lot of that visual component is going to be POV shots while I'm on my daily walks. 
But I genuinely do my best thinking while I'm out walking, so I thought it would be kind of a fun way to sort of give the feel of what it's like to be along with me on a walk while I'm doing my brainstorming sessions. Very important part of my creative process and for my writing, and you know, I thought it'd be fun to let people see what that's like. A million years ago, a few of you awesome listeners kicked in some ideas when I prompted people to ask me literally anything in a Twitter thread, and Selfie on the Edge of Forever is where the answers to those questions will be appearing. In the future, I'm also going to be rolling out a Patreon, where if you support the show for as little as one buck a month, I will take your questions and suggested topics and turn them into selfie episodes or maybe even full episodes of the podcast, which will hopefully answer your most burning queries about what it's like to write for a living or anything else you want to ask me. So I hope you enjoy Selfie. The first episode will be out on Wednesday, the 18th of October, and you'll be able to get it at selfieontheedgeofforever.com on the Future Saint of a New Era YouTube channel. Yeah, there's a YouTube channel. There's nothing there at the moment, but there will be on my Substack, or you can just follow me on the social media of your choice, and I will post my little short teaser versions of each episode on Instagram and TikTok with a link to where you can see the whole thing. My username's the same everywhere, the Libby Grant, and be sure you spell Libby with an I-E, not a Y. I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, Substack. Find me in any of those places that you also use. I do still have a Twitter account, but I'm really only on Twitter so I can continue leaking Blue Sky join codes to people who are trying to get away since Elon Musk has gone full actual literal Nazi and is now blaming the Jews for his own shortcomings as a businessman. What a hellscape we live in, am I right? Also, one aspect of the new and hopefully improved format that I'm really excited about is that I plan to do special episodes or series of episodes about some of my all-time favorite artists and their very weird lives. I originally envisioned this podcast as being about outsider artists and outsider art, and it's even in a roundabout way where the name of the podcast came from as an oblique reference to Vincent Van Gogh, and then it just kind of morphed into personal narrative instead. But I am going to devote some space here to occasional deep dives into the lives of some of the most interesting and creative people I know of, and I'm gonna get really dorky about that shit for sure because if there's one thing I love to talk about, it's weirdos who make art. I'm not sure when the first of these featured artist episodes will come out because each one is going to require pretty extensive research and writing, but I already know for sure I'm going to cover Philip K. Dick and his weird Valus experience and the subsequent writing of his Exegesis, which is like an extraordinary, bizarro, prophetic book. I'm going to cover Henry Darger, Rosalind Norton, Leonora Carrington, Hilma F. Clint, and doubtless many other really cool outsider artists whom you've probably never heard of, or at least in the case of Philip K. Dick, you've heard of them, but you haven't heard the coolest shit about them yet. I'm really stoked about this forthcoming aspect of the podcast. I know you'll enjoy it too, because these stories are flat out bonkers and will blow your freaking socks off with their unexpected weirdness. The art world is full of motley goons having the strangest experiences, and I want to talk about all of them. And one final announcement, speaking of strange experiences, the rest of October's episodes will be dedicated to the weirdest, unexplained, true story I have ever encountered. I'm obsessed with this tale. I've already run it by my husband, Paul, and now he's like totally obsessed with this story too. It's perfect for spooky season, and the next three episodes of Future Saint of a New Era are warranted to give you chills and thrills. It's a mashup of some of the things I've talked about on my most popular episodes of this podcast so far. Ghosts, artificial intelligence, the trippy weirdness of the conscious mind, and yet, it's a true story, y'all. I can't wait for you to hear the first ever series from this podcast. Perhaps the first of many, we'll see. And those episodes will be coming to you on October 11th, 18th, and 25th, packing your month with spooky scary skeletons and shivers down your spine. Anyway, sorry for the long radar silence, but I know you're gonna love all the stuff I'll be bringing you next. And now, on with the show. Ray Bradbury's publishers refer to him simply as the world's greatest living science fiction writer. Some might take exception to the description, but only to argue that what he writes is not science fiction, but fantasy. Stories that tell us little about science, but a great deal about the netherworld of imagination buried deep in all of us. So... Sometime between the end of last season and now, I finished writing The Vigilance. 
Actually, I finished writing The Vigilance on uh, the 16th of August, and at about six months for 90,000 words, it was the longest it has taken me to write a book since my first two, which each took me two years to write. Over many years and many books, I've built up the speed and skills to write a good book in a much shorter amount of time. For example, one for The Blackbird, one for The Crow, which is published under my Olivia Hawker pen name and is still my most popular book to date, took me only 10 weeks to write and was more than twice as long as The Vigilance. So you can really see like the contrast in time there. I desperately wanted to get this book done much sooner, but it was a totally different writing experience from what I'm used to and it just refused to be written quickly. Or, like, sensibly. So some of you might already know that years ago I wrote a how-to guide for authors called Take Off Your Pants, which is a funny title, I know, but it references the saying we have in the writing world, which is, are you a plotter or a pantser? Or in other words, do you plot your books out before you start writing, or do you fly by the seat of your pants? Hence the pants reference. Take Off Your Pants shares my special outlining method, which was and is part of the secret of my success as an author. Namely, my outlining method allows me to write books really quickly. So like finishing Blackbird in 10 weeks, that was thanks to my outlining method. Take Off Your Pants is a very reliable method for putting together a great narrative that has, you know, a tight pace and tension and a cohesive feel with at least one interesting character at the heart of the story. And it's been popular enough that it's actually been translated into Korean, which is awesome, especially since it's a self-published book. Usually you don't get translations on indie books. And I've taught many workshops on the method at various writers' conferences over the years. And so naturally, being the outlining maven and having written 42 books before without any trouble, I assumed I could outline the vigilance too and have it done in like a few weeks. Uh, no, nope. That was uh, not gonna happen. Never went to college. Don't believe in college for writers. I think it's very dangerous. I think uh, too many professors are too opinionated and too snobbish and too intellectual. And the intellect is a great danger to creativity. It has the to intellect is a danger to creativity? Terrible danger because you begin to rationalize and make up reasons for things instead of staying with your own basic truth. Mm -hmm. Who you are, what you are, what you wanna be. And uh, I've had a sign over my uh, typewriter for 25 years now, which reads, don't think. The Vigilance did not want to come together that way. And it didn't matter how many times I worked up an outline and did the work to ensure the character arcs would be what they needed to be and put all the components of a great story into place. Like, I was always incredibly dissatisfied with the result and I would have to go back and like cut out everything I'd written and kind of crank it back to wherever I'd been before I started the outline. As you can imagine, this was extremely frustrating and I did not enjoy it much. But after a while, I finally figured out that the book kept making me dial it back to pre-outlined places. So after like five or six of these fiascos, I finally got smart and realized that the book itself wanted me to fly by the seat of my pants. So I did, which was new for me, new and uncomfortable. But also once I got used to the fact that I just would not be permitted to outline this particular work, I enjoyed the process because it was very surprising and it really kept me from falling back on literary convention too much. And as a result, I think the vigilance ended up being kind of a mishmash of different characters, voices, and different styles without much regard for the way things are traditionally done in modern Western storytelling, which sounds awful if I just describe it to you like that, but I was actually really happy with the result. It definitely needs some refinement, which is usually the case with an unpublished book, but I think it holds together conceptually, uh, despite its disparate voices, and I think the very strangeness of its structure actually enhances the theme of the book. So I'm really glad I allowed the idea itself to take the driver's seat rather than my dictating what it had to be based on conventional ideas about story. I think it's a much more powerful and meaningful presentation of the core idea that's at the heart of this book because it's presented in such an unusual manner. 
And I actually, my script for this episode talks a little bit about how my agent hasn't read it yet, but she's working on it, so I haven't heard her thoughts on it. But as I was setting up to record, I got the email from my agent with her feedback on the, on the manuscript, which, yay, I'm so happy. She actually liked a lot about it. She definitely had a lot of suggestions for improvement too, which I'm super grateful for because, you know, it needs it. Like all unpublished books, it needs work and it needs that input from fresh eyes and fresh perspectives. And she had a lot of fantastic feedback about how to improve it from an agent's point of view, from a commercial point of view, how to make it something that would be easier for her to sell. So I'm definitely taking her feedback into account on those points. Also, my friend Tim read the manuscript and he had some really, really great thoughts about how to improve it as well. But all in all, both my agent and Tim liked it. They were like, hey, there's a lot here that's really cool and really unique and fresh and very timely. So I think letting the book be in charge worked out for the best in this case. And I have to say, I'm actually really, really excited to dive into the revisions on this one. I have to finish writing my next Olivia Hawker book uh, for Lake Union, my publisher, first. As soon as I'm done with that, which will be mid-October, I am jumping right back into the Vigilance and just ripping it apart for that revision, and I am stoked already to get going on it. The worst thing you do when you think is lie. You can make up reasons that are not true for the mm. things that you did. And what you try and do as a creative person is surprise yourself. Find out who you really are and try not to lie. Try to tell the truth all the time. And the only way to do this is by being very active and very emotional and get it out of yourself, making lists of things that you hate and things that you love. Mm. And you write about these then intensely. And when it's over, then you can think about it. Then mm. you can look at it, well, it works or it doesn't work. Something's missing here. And then if something is missing, you go back and re-emotionalize that mm -hmm. so it's all of a piece. What's really interesting to me, though, is that as soon as I finished writing The Vigilance, like literally the same day, I got a flood of new ideas for sci-fi novels. And they're all really good ideas, too. Like, I can't even decide which one to work on next because they all are like, oh, so good, I want to write them all. The Vigilance is kind of sci-fi. Like, it'll appeal to people who like uh, so-called soft sci-fi, which is opposed to hard sci-fi. Hard sci-fi places a heavy emphasis on actual science and technology, on, like, future projections of real science and tech. And the plot heavily involves specifics of those things. Soft sci-fi is more about the human reaction to science and technology. And The Vigilance definitely ticks that box, for sure. So although I wrote it for the literary fiction market, I think there'll be a lot of crossover and I won't be surprised at all if it ultimately ends up being purchased by an imprint that focuses on like upmarket science fiction. If, if I'm anything at all, I'm not really a science fiction writer. I'm a writer of fairy tales and, and modern myths about technology. What I'm really loving about this stage of my career or whatever is that all my life I've loved science fiction. I read it all the time. Some of my favorite books of all time are sci-fi, like Dune, for example. And I've always said that I would love to write it, but no good ideas for the genre have ever come to me. Until now, because like literally the moment I finished writing The Vigilance, like I went downstairs, I told Paul, oh my God, I finished writing The Vigilance, I'm so stoked. I went outside on the back deck and like the universe opened up and started fire hosing all the ideas for sci-fi novels I maybe should have gotten years and years ago directly into my brain. Like the ideas were downloading so fast that I couldn't keep up. I was sitting there on the deck, like frantically taking notes on my phone, trying to capture every detail I could get of each idea that was just like blowing through my head like a hurricane. And I was desperately grabbing the little scraps of setting and character and plot for each one and like taking notes as fast as I could. And then as soon as I had one idea jotted down enough that I'd be able to like recall it pretty well later, another totally different idea would just come roaring out of nowhere and smack me in the face. It was was nuts. I have never experienced a flood of ideas like that before. It was so weird. It was like all these ideas were waiting in some hidden room to see whether I could prove that I could write science fiction or not, I guess. And as soon as I found the right ending for The Vigilance, which took a few days and a little experimentation, but I finally got it, all the ideas came charging out of hiding and were like fighting for my attention, fighting to see which one I'd work on next, and I still don't know. Three of those new ideas, though, I'm for sure going to be doing soonish, and I have them developed enough that I was able to write up proposals for them in case some publisher wants to see proposals along with the manuscript for The Vigilance, so that's nice. 
The rest I'm gonna let simmer for a while so I can extract their thematic elements and kind of build them up a little bit more, but those three are solid and ready to go and I'm set on getting new sci-fi out for three years after The Vigilance is published whenever that will be and whoever publishes it. That feels really good because I'm often in the position of having to kind of grub around for an idea that'll work and will hit the market just right with my historical fiction. So it's a really nice change of pace to have a solid three years worth of work just like ready to go waiting for me. The great thing about growing up in uh, science fiction is that you have an interest in everything. And uh, so architecture was one of them, being a boy magician was another, becoming an actor. So I kind of feel like maybe I'm supposed to be doing sci-fi? Or this stuff that kind of straddles the line between literary and sci-fi? I've always thought of myself as a literary fiction author, I still do, but sci-fi feels like the right substrate for my literary fiction. And it's hard not to feel like this is where I'm supposed to be given the ridiculous bank of ideas I was granted access to by some cosmic force that was withholding access previously. But it feels right for me in a really solid and meaningful way. I mean, like, obviously, as anyone who listens to this podcast will understand, I'm super into futurism and metaphysics and the technologies that we live with and are learning to live with. I've always been fascinated by these things since I was a kid, so finally discovering my voice and my pet topics within the genre feels comfortable and even, like, inevitable in a way that historical fiction and contemporary literary fiction have never quite felt. And that sense of rightness, of clicking with my personality, has me really excited about The Vigilance and what will come after that book, and about my future in a way that I haven't been excited for a really, really long time. I know at least some of my listeners found this podcast because they found Olivia Hawker first, my pen name, and I want you to know that nothing is changing as far as Olivia Hawker is concerned. I still love history too and historical fiction, and to be perfectly honest, Olivia Hawker is how I pay my mortgage. She's my job. So I'm going to continue writing historical fiction under that pen name until, uh, well, frankly, until I don't need to anymore financially. And that may mean a handful more Olivia books. It may mean dozens more, like I just keep doing it every year until the day I die. And either way is fine with me because I, I enjoy it. I love my job. It's a lot of fun. But just because I'm now considering myself a sci-fi writer, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing the thing that makes money for me. That would be stupid. And I have a lot of wonderful readers of my historical fiction, and I'm so extremely grateful every single day for the amazing support and enthusiasm you all have shown for my work in that genre. I'm not leaving that behind, at least not for the foreseeable future. But it does mean that something inside me feels more complete now. I almost feel like maybe these ideas were being withheld from me all these years because I wasn't ready to write them yet. I didn't yet have the skills. I wasn't the writer I was meant to be until the vigilance caused that growth in me. And I did grow tremendously in my craft and my ability while writing this book. I could feel it. I could feel the vigilance putting me through my paces and making me think much harder about what I was doing. The book wasn't going to allow me to like coast on what I'd already learned or the skills I'd already developed. And listen, Olivia Hawker, she's no slouch. I'm very pleased to say that. Although I am kind of an unknown quantity in the book world and that often drives me crazy. I also have a lot of readers. Olivia Hawker is a popular writer. She just gets a zero professional recognition because, well, I mean, I, I could do a whole episode about how stupid and petty the publishing industry is once you're on the inside of it. And maybe I will someday because it's almost funny how ridiculous <laughs> the inside of book world is. But suffice to say that there's a, a big pointless grudge against the publisher who puts out My Olivia stuff because they're owned by Amazon. And the rest of the book world is needlessly and fruitlessly mad at Amazon for existing. So... Books and authors that are published by these Amazon-owned companies are deliberately shut out of major important opportunities that would build those authors' careers in really significant ways. One example is uh, the seasonal most anticipated lists that get published online and like in magazines and stuff. Big influencer promotions like Reese Witherspoon's Book Club, 
and uh, like the major awards. My publisher has been very enthusiastic and supportive about nominating my books for every award. Like everything they conceivably can nominate me for every single year. But my books don't even get considered by the judges because they see the publisher's imprint on the spine and they automatically just decide they aren't worth reading because of this silly industry infighting. So despite the fact that Olivia Hawker has lots and lots of readers, she also remains a total nobody within the profession itself. And there's very little chance of that ever changing. And that frequently makes me very frustrated and heartbroken and dissatisfied, despite all the great things about my career, because it turns out it's pretty rough knowing that you're really good at what you do, yet still being unacknowledged and invisible after years and years of busting your ass and producing work that's a good cut above the ordinary. And I'm sorry if that sounds assholey. Like, I know it, it's gross when somebody, like, talks themselves up even a little bit. But also, those of you who found this podcast because you found Olivia Hawker first, you probably agree with me, to be honest. I mean, nobody tracks down the podcast of a writer who they think is just okay, right? Y'all are here because you enjoyed my work a whole hell of a lot, and I'm so glad you did, and I thank you for that. And I think we're on the same page when I say that it would be nice if I could at least get my work fairly considered in a competition alongside that of my peers. Or if one of the major influencers who uh, decide the fates of writers' careers these days would at least read, like, the first page of one of my novels and see if maybe they want to keep reading a little bit more. Anyway, I digress. These are not on any reading lists anywhere in the world. They are reviled and detested by all of the teachers and all the librarians. And most of the libraries don't even carry his books. Science fiction feels really right for me because it is such a change from historical fiction and because to be honest, it's kind of where I started out when I first began really trying to make myself into a successful and skillful writer. So in a way, it feels like this identity has been gestating in me all this time, like waiting until I was finally ready for it. And maybe the vigilance was kind of a testing ground to see whether I was prepared, whether I could be trusted to do all these big, relevant ideas full justice. If so, if there's some cosmic force out there that tests writers in this way. I'm grateful to have passed the test and I'm grateful for the test itself because I became a different kind of writer over the six months I spent working so hard on that book. I had to think about story in totally new ways. I had to think about character in new ways. Most of all, I had to think about structure in new ways, about how the way a story is told can become a part of the story itself. And even one of the most important parts of that story, to the point that whole additional layers of meaning can be built into structure. It turns out that the structure of the vigilance is incredibly important to the point of the novel, to its theme, and the way the story unfolds almost tells a whole other story which I hope readers will have fun looking at and thinking about the way you might think about a puzzle or a riddle. And I've never written that way before. I've never put structure at the forefront of my craft. It challenged me and demanded more from me in a way that was refreshing to feel. Like it was good to know that I'm capable of rising to such a big challenge and creating something unique and meaningful within an art form that prizes and emphasizes traditional forms. And I know I have a lot of work to do on the revision, of course, like that's, it's not perfect yet by any means. But I know now that I can break the mold when I need to and be innovative and perhaps even a little avant-garde. And that's a very pleasant thing to discover about oneself. It's especially nice to discover something new about yourself in middle age. I was influenced at an early age by the real tellers of tales mm -hmm. of all history. When you start out 2,000 years ago, come up through time and learn all the myths, then you become a good storyteller. This mm -hmm. is, it's in your blood then by the time you start to write. Yeah. I'm glad for that background. I mentioned before that sci-fi is kind of where I started, and I did, that's true, though I wasn't trying to write sci-fi specifically back then. It just turned out that the best writing group I could find was full of sci-fi authors, so that was what I focused on very early in my career, before, before I had any career to speak of. See, I'd always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid, but of course I didn't know how to go about doing that in practical terms. But in like my mid to late 20s, I felt that I really needed to start getting serious about this writing thing if I wanted to make it happen. 
So I sought out online forums where I could connect with other writers and begin observing how other people were making it happen. And this was back in the Wild West days of the internet, the 2000s, two decades ago. God help me and my ancient mummy bones. There was no social media back then, which meant the internet was infinitely more enjoyable and fascinating as I have talked about on this show before. But it was harder to connect with people who shared your specific interests, you know? Like, nobody was using hashtags back then. We still called a hashtag pound sign in 2003. I am ashamed and horrified to admit that I don't remember the name of the forum I finally ended up on. I remember the name had something to do with like a basement or a cellar, as in like the writers all hung out in this dank, stinky underground that nobody else was interested in going into. And that forum where we all did our writing practice stuff was attached somehow to a different forum that I don't think was about writing, but it might have been about reading. This is all very vague, I'm sorry. What I do remember about it was that this community I somehow fortuitously stumbled into was jam-packed with really good writers. And they were all, all of them, to a person, except for me, writing science fiction. So I had this opportunity to learn craft from the early career iterations of some of the most incredible and highly respected authors in today's sci-fi world. Like seriously, back in the 2000s, my random ass was critique partners with Elliot de Bodard, the French-American author who went on to win a whole raft of nebulas. She and I would just like swap stories all the time. We were both on equal footing back then as total noobs, although Honestly, Aliette was light years ahead of me in craft, of course. She's always been incredible. Mary Robinette Cole was on that forum, and another frequent crit partner of mine. This was back in the day when Mary was still making her living as a puppeteer working for Jim Henson Studios. I remember when she landed uh, the editing job that eventually led to her becoming art director at... Uh, oh, I think it was either it was either Heliotrope or Shimmer that hired her as art director. And she went on to become the president of Sci-Fi Writers of America, like one of the biggest and most important writers' organizations on the continent. Her subsequent novels have won Hugos and Nebulas, plural for both of them. And honestly, the main thing I remember about working with Mary during those years was how incredibly kind she always was. Just so nice and encouraging with all her feedback as a critique partner. She was fantastic to learn from. Ted Kazmatka is another ridiculously gifted and accomplished writer who I became friends with via that forum. Ted mainly does short fiction. His short stories are some of the most finely crafted I've ever read. They're amazing. His short story, N-Words, is wrenching and beautiful and not to be missed. And he's been nominated for like a locus and has won Asimov's Reader's Choice and has had his short fiction published in like literally every major sci-fi magazine and all the most covetable anthologies. Okay, I'll stop name dropping now. Suffice to say, this forum, whose name I cannot remember, was an incredible place to learn how to write fiction from some of the very best fiction writers living today. You said that uh, you had this fantasy of wanting to be a writer and that you became a writer. Why so early did you think you wanted to become a writer? Was this again your interest in science fiction at a very Science early fiction and fantasy, I began, uh, my aunt and my mother read to me when I was three from all the old Grimm fairy tales, Anderson fairy tales, and then all the Oz books as I was growing up, and then Edgar Allan Poe when I was eight. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was 10 or 11, I was just full to the brim with these, and the, the Greek myths and the Roman myths. And, and then, of course, I went to Sunday school, and you take in the Christian myths, mm -hmm. which are all fascinating in their own way. And, and what I found most useful about it, even more than the amazing critiques and guidance I got from so many highly skilled authors, was the weekly timed challenge. See, every week, uh, I think it was Saturday morning, we would have a prompt waiting for us in this forum. And then we would follow this link, which took us to this little applet that somebody had written it that would start a timer. So you had 90 minutes to write a short story based on the prompt. So all of us were writing to the same prompt each Saturday morning, all under the same time restriction, it was such a great exercise. You had to think on your feet, you had to write about something you wouldn't ordinarily write about, and you had to move fast and not second guess whatever you were doing. You just had to commit to an idea and see it through and try to make it as good as you could on a very tight timeline. And here was the really excellent part of this weekly writing exercise. Once you were finished, if you beat the timer, 
your story would be posted anonymously in this forum and all the other participants would critique it. So no one's name was attached. Everyone just shared their honest opinions about what they read with like no regard for who had written it. And everyone gave constructive feedback that was genuinely very useful in improving your craft. And there was like, there was some kind of score we could assign to each story. So whichever one got the highest score, that writer would come up with the prompt for the following week. So this gave us all the motivation to write regularly and to write no matter what, because we weren't sitting around waiting for the perfect idea and the perfect mood to strike us. It was log in, get your prompt and get a piece finished in 90 minutes or else. But it was also giving us in-depth criticism and actionable steps to improve our work from some unbelievably talented writers who went on to prove themselves as among the best in the whole genre. Fucking awesome. What better learning experience could a new writer have, right? And by the way, critiquing other people's work is an unbelievably useful way to learn craft yourself, no matter what art you're practicing. This is why I always recommend that writers who want to get good at writing, one of the best things you can do is to review other people's books. But you don't just do a cursory, I liked it or I didn't like it kind of thing. You really dig into why you liked what you liked and why you didn't like other things. Like get detailed, think about your reaction to that piece and think about how you would improve it if you were to write it yourself. Or think about what needed no improvement and why it needed none. Putting these feelings into words makes those ideas accessible to you later on, so when you're trying to improve some specific skill in your own craft, you'll know what that skill is, what it's called, what it means to execute it well. You'll have a concrete goal to shoot for. So given that I actually cut my teeth and developed my early skills in a sci-fi writing forum among the best of the best in the contemporary science fiction world, maybe it's not so surprising that I ended up back here again. I've come full circle, which in a funny and poignant way is something I talk about a little bit in The Vigilance, the way we tend to circle back around to our origins, even when we think we're reaching the end of something. And that when things end, new things also begin. And there's a kind of beauty and holiness to that predictable pattern that keeps repeating across reality. Maybe the title of this episode shouldn't be, oops, I'm a sci-fi author now. Maybe it should be, Hallelujah, I'm a sci-fi author again. In this part of the universe, God has wakened on this planet and shaped himself the way we are shaped. We are the flesh of the universe which wishes to know itself. That's great, that's responsible, that's beautiful. It's a very nice concept of religion, one I'm very uh, comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I like to think of myself as part of the universe waking up and looking around saying, hey, this is remarkable, look at this, I have all these senses. I'd like to keep this gift going. You find no conflict between religion and science, then? Absolutely none. They are, uh, the, the processes they're going through are, almost, are the two halves of a coin, because everything ends in mystery. I mean, the scientists have theories, and the theologians have myths, and they're the both, both the same thing, mm -hmm. because we end up in ignorance. We don't know what gravity is. We have theories about light, but they're only theories, which are being revised. Even Mr. Einstein is coming under scrutiny again in the last few years with mm -hmm. some of his theories. These will be revised and changed in the next 100 years and again 100,000 years from now. So anyway, I thought it would be fun to read one of the short stories I wrote on that forum during one of the time challenges. It's one of my very first completed works of fiction ever and it still holds a real place of honor in my heart. So here is a little taste of my apprentice work. It's called A Light in the Merced River. I hope you enjoy it, friends. On a bluff high above the Merced River, John stopped to admire a thatch of weeds. He set down his pack, folded himself cross-legged on the ground, and bent until he was eye-level with the plants, with their many eyes, their yellows and scarlets all in bloom, the edges of their leaves just beginning to dry and curl in the oncoming heat of Indian summer. Some of the blossoms had already gone to seed. He plucked a stem, turned it in his fingers so the globe of feathered seeds twirled. He blew on it. A breeze from the river blew back, and the seeds lodged in his beard. Jean laughed. She'd come up behind him, walking quietly. She knew it pleased him when she was as quiet as she could be. He loved to hear her laugh, though, and she knew that, too. When she bent to pick the seeds from his long beard, 
he barely heard the whir of her motion, all her intricate joints articulated with special care. Come, John, she said, and hefted his pack easily to her own back, along with the stuffed full rucksack she already carried. We have to keep going if we're to reach camp before dark. Let me carry my own pack, Jean. It's not right for a woman to carry a man's burden. Blue-purple shadows, slow light glaciers, were already carving the valley raw. Was it really so close to sunset? John stood and reached out to her. She gave the pack meekly, but smiled when his hand brushed hers. They both knew it would be easier to allow her to carry it, but it wasn't right that a woman should carry a man's burden. And Jean was a woman. They walked side by side to the cabin. John looked at her now and then, studied her contours and features in the same way he studied the valley, though her body was as familiar to him as his own. More familiar. Jean had a power in her profile, nose very long and very straight, lips young and blush-rose pink, cheekbones small and chin fine and pointed. He often wondered where her image had come from, for she looked like no other woman he could recall. She looked like no one so much as Jean. She was herself, his always companion, the one who carried his burdens, the finest of his creations, his most intricate and warm-fleshed him to the Holy Ghost, technology. The spirit must have possessed him when he crafted her, when he laid the mobile face in place atop its neuromuscular network of tubes and wires, watched her open her eyes, watched the pupils adjust, whir, click, to take in the sight of her creator. She was made by the hand of John, but was the stark essence of the spirit of technology, cleanly cold, cleanly bright, cleanly undying. She was immaculate. In the small stone cabin, she stoked a fire for him. Back on the fruit ranch, his wife and daughters lived their lives. Here in the Merced Valley, John watched Jean at her busy work. The deftness of her fingers striking the match, the precise, descriptive dance of wrist and forearm, touching the flame to the kindling, bringing to life the primitive bright heat, a soft and pretty Prometheus in her boyish trousers. John set about making his dinner and wrote a while. Jean occupied herself with mending a rent in his pack, thicket, heavy bramble, and played from inside her chest a violin scherzo, quiet enough not to distract him. When they had both finished their work, the fire was still burning. John stood carefully. He looked at her, sitting cross-legged on the old wooden chair. The smoothness of her unbreakable skin was pleasing, contrasted against the splintering oak. Even this oak one day would erode, change, disintegrate, and be nothing. Jean would go on. The ghost would go on. She understood the look in his eyes. Without being asked, she rose and removed her clothing. The cot in the cabin was just wide enough. It was always wide enough. Violins rose and swelled and played inside John's chest. The next day, John and his companion took to the trails again. He'd had maps when he first came here to the open wildness of California on his mission. But he and Jean had long since moved beyond the scope of the maps, long since climbed past the paper borders, higher into the hills, deeper into the breathing valley. There was only so much information the tech cloisters in Boston could provide. Mapping was part of John's duty. Mapping and collecting the samples. Jean helped with both. She had weeks of work stored and her memory banks were still not near full. She was filling up with maps, etching inside herself topographical lines, sinews and capillaries of the land. When the cloisters sent their priests with the mining equipment, Jean's data would lead them. The history books would remember John Muir, missionary, for generations. His father would at last be proud. The morning light was cold and pink. John held Jean's cold pink hand. They left the foothills, descended to the valley floor, to the waist-high grasses and the head-high flights of insects. Jean bent over the earth to collect a sample. John, she said. Calcipyrite. What? Jean stepped carefully along the ground, scanning. He could hear her ticking and spooling. A very large vein. She looked up. This is wonderful, John. There may be enough here to last for decades. Wonderful, John said, looking away from her, 
watching a toss of blackbirds scatter up into the sky. They hung over the scene he loved so well, the great sharp thrusts of granite, the bones of the planet exposed and defiant, unmovable. Calcipyrite. Copper ore. He should contact the cloister immediately. He should uplink Jean, have her send her data to Boston as soon as possible, now. This was what they came for. This was John's crusade. He imagined the valley floor stripped, paired of all its layers, the warm ochres of ore exposed to the sun. It wouldn't be so different, really. The earth was bare now, standing above the valley in the mightiest peaks and ridges man could ever hope to see. But the stone was cool, blue-gray-green, and no steam-powered digging machines could ever carve such strength and beauty from the ground. John? Jean was waiting. Record it, he said, turning back to her. She smiled at him. She was happy to have found the ore, he could tell. All their hard work had paid off. And then we'll move on. You don't want me to send the data now? No, don't send it until I tell you. Record it and we'll move on. Jean shrugged, recorded the data, and followed him out of the meadow, still beaming. Ever since the start of his mission, since the Merced Valley had first gained this hold on his heart, John had been having dreams. Base, animalistic dreams in which flesh ripped and blood spattered the grass. In the blood dreams, the grass went on bending, rippling across the belly of a hillside while the animal twisted and screamed. El Capitan rose up above it, cold blue-green, still and watching. At first, John had wakened screaming like the animal. Soon enough, though, he began to accept the dreams. And now, some nights he woke from them, excited. Sometimes he woke Jean and relieved his excitement on her body. She would move with him and moan until he spent himself. Afterward, she would stroke his back and say sweet things to him, and John, knowing the source of his excitement, would feel disgust and loathing twist up inside. He could never tell her why he woke this way, what he dreamed. He could never tell her how nature thrilled him, how the sinister, bright-furred disorder of it made him throb with vulnerability and power. He was repulsed by his own instincts. He would, he knew, if not for the mission, take off all his clothes and drop his pack and lope through the brush on hands and feet. He would catch a rabbit with his hands and kill it with his teeth. He would be caught in turn, stalked from behind by a mountain lion or pulled up into the sky, twisting and screaming by a great bird while his blood fell on the grass below. He could never tell anyone. Not his wife, not his colleagues. What would they think? Not even Jean. She was a being of technology as pure and straight as copper. She could never understand such a sickness. She could never understand what he was. By its very nature, what he was turned his back on Jean. Lovely, sweet, soft Jean, the hymn of his heart. He whispered the word as he walked through the forest, as he listened to the sound of Jean's movements and processes tick staccato against the unmetered wail of the valley. Apostate. John, I have a message for you. They were down by the river again. John had set Jean to cataloging all the species of plants by the riverside. She straightened now, clearly uncomfortable with the message in her banks, and looked to John for help. From? Boston. John sighed. All right, play it then. Jean settled herself on a boulder. Her eyes glazed and the irises flipped back. The image projected out in front of her, hanging up above the wildflowers. A clean-shaven man, neat hair, receding above the temples, black garb of the Holy Order. Father Wilkeson, the one who'd sent John to California to search for the ore. The sight of him made John cold with guilt. The image wavered as Jean collated the data. A pair of cabbage moths flew, tumbling, through Father Wilkeson's face. John, Wilkeson said, we haven't heard from you in nearly two weeks. We are still able to link to your companion, but she hasn't responded to any of our queries. You are overdue with your report. The father's voice moved faster than his lips. John nodded as if the father could see him. He was a chastised altar boy. 
We need to know your status, John. The miners are ready to move in any time, if we can only get confirmation of the ore. Contact the cloisters immediately upon receipt of this message. Father Wilkeson folded his hands in benediction. Then he blinked out. Jean's eyes resumed their bright, soft smile. John bent to take her hand. He helped her rise from the boulder, though she needed nothing of his help, weak, disgusting creature that he was. Armature of breakable bone, torn skin, mirror purple shining viscera under an unseeing sky, grass rippling in the wind. What was he, compared to her purity of purpose, her piety? He was an evolved beast, still stinking of the slime from which he rose, still red inside with a wildness and desire. And she... she was created. I'm not worthy even to touch you, Jean. She held onto his hand. Don't be silly, you created me. I'm your creation. I would not be but for you. The cloister has been trying to reach you all this time and you've ignored their queries. You told me to hold all data until you were ready to send it. It's important to you. How do they get data out of companions? Is it is it painful? She shrugged. I, I've always given it to them freely. It's not difficult that way, but... John waited, holding his breath. But they tried coaxing me a few times. The smile slipped from her face. She turned away from him, watching the river, the little black birds bobbing on the rocks midstream. By righteousness. John closed his eyes, wondering what she might feel with this coaxing, and afraid to wonder. He squeezed her hand. The metal inside her pulsed faintly. I'm sorry, Jean. I'm sorry to have put you through it. You don't deserve this. She turned back to him. Her face was all peace and gentleness again. I do it for you, John. I will do anything for you. He left Jean beside the river. There was still plenty of light left in the day, and John wanted to begin enumerating the animal life in this part of the valley. It was easier to do alone. Something about Jean repulsed animal life, sent it scattering to a safe distance, set it spying with hidden yellow eyes. Beasts, of course, couldn't be expected to understand technology. Theirs was the base drama of nature, kill, be killed, birth young, and rot in the ground. They could not create. They could not understand. John climbed into the foothills, fantastically angry with himself for allowing Jean to suffer and wholly unable to make himself give the order that would relieve her of her burden. When he descended halfway up the hill's face, he turned in a clearing to look back at the river. Jean was there, bobbing among the rocks, a small golden blur in the mess of green. From this distance, she looked more human than John had ever imagined her to be. He pushed back into the dim, umber forest, let the branches of cedar and aspen close around his face, cut off the sight of his companion. When he was concealed, he sat still in the undergrowth for a long time, breathing the smell of crackling sap and loam and fur. Then, when he could stay still no more, he ran uphill, crashing through thickets, slipping on rocks, skinning his hands, and up again, up again, running. Squirrels scolded his passing. Ravens took offended flight, dark shapes winging past the trees. A deer burst out of the brush and ran with him three, four bounding paces. Could I reach out, he thought, and tear its flesh with my claws? Then veered away again and disappeared into the sinister shadow of the wood. He ran until his lungs burned with cold fire. At Hill's crest, the path of some secret creature wended around fallen logs and between aspens. John doubled over on the path, hands braced against knees, heaving for breath. His mind still felt the forward motion of his flight, and everywhere he looked his vision raced away from him, stretching the landscape out and out, though he was standing still, he was sure of it. He turned his face up in a shaft of light that pierced the canopy, treetops like black lace bent over him. At the crown of a maple, sparrows danced among the branches, busying themselves with their inconsequential, brittle, short little lives. John watched them, and they watched him, the tiny, obsidian beads of their eyes. A golden blur in a mess of green, more human than ever. The birds, like the trees, like the ground, like the sky, 
stretched away from him, receded, traveling away through narrowing space and time faster than he could ever run. That night, when John had the animal dream, he burrowed deeper into it. He brought the dream to his mouth and bit and tasted copper and salt. Jean lay in the rippling grass, naked, exposed to the elements. He had the momentary urge to cover her with his body, not to love her, but to protect her from the corrosive, corrupting power of the valley. He moved toward her, arms and legs weighted underwater, but when he stood over her, he bent instead and lifted off the gentle curved plate of her face. A swarm of cabbage moths smoked up from where her eyes had been, battering his cheeks and eyelids, obscuring his vision, powder white. When they passed, Jean was gone. The earth held a damp-smelling impression of her body, but the memory of a shape, and nothing more. John's hands were empty. He opened his eyes deliberately. The lids were heavy. The fire had long since burned to nothing. The cinders in the fireplace rustled in a wind that crept down the chimney. Jean, lying on her back, was barely visible beside him in the dimness of the cabin. She was in sleep mode, her systems cool and retreated. John sat up to look at her, what little of her he could see. His animal eyes dilated in the dark. The shapes of her body flowed together, forehead into cheek, into valley dip of collarbone, steel reinforced, chest plateauing to high breast, receding to floodplain of the abdomen, to dark river delta, to two long, strong legs, a stretch of hills on the eastern and western horizons. Here the sun rose and set. My gene, my creation, my valley, my wilderness. He would run in her forests forever if he could, but someday, soon, he would age and slow, while Jean went on, as unchanging as religion. Would he turn her over, he wondered, stroking her golden hair to a younger man to carry on his work. A Bostonian, fresh and holy from his time in the cloisters spent building and programming. A young man unruined by nature. John's hand moved from plateau to plain. His palm cupped the world, and the world throbbed faintly with sleeping energy. What would his own work be as an old man, overseeing missions like this one, sending other young men and their companions into the wilderness to face the temptations of the world? He stretched his aging, hot body beside the comforting coolness of his gene. He pressed his face into her firm skin, smelling her, the clean, bright, metallic incense. She had kept all the data back for him. She had denied the cloisters, resisted their coaxing for him and in a mad black rush john knew he didn't want to go back couldn't go back though he lay still he was dizzy his head buzzed with a sudden forceful rush of his realization damn the cloisters and damn the machines he would stay here in the merced valley with the birds and the deer with the foxes and the hundreds of unseen yellow eyes with the weeds on the ridge with the rocks in the river he'd keep gene here with him They'd be stewards of the valley together. Boston would send more missionaries eventually, and perhaps John and Jean could get rid of them. But no, soon enough, they'd overwhelm this place. Soon enough, others would find the copper ore. Soon enough, the machines would come. The river would be diverted. The hillside would be cleft by an ochre wound. And all the wild things, deer, bear, John, fox, would be displaced or killed. It was hopeless, entirely hopeless. Boston was too powerful for one man and his companion, but John wouldn't be a part of it. By righteousness, he would not. This one thing was in his control, to resist them as Jean had resisted, to deny them what they sought. They would have it eventually, but they would never have it from him. And Jean, she couldn't stay here in the wilderness. Eventually, she would need the maintenance of the cloisters, an updating of her programming, a replenishing of her blue heart. She was a being of technology, and without some link to it, she would die. Jean, he whispered in the dark, not loudly enough to wake her. He didn't want to wake her. He only wanted to feel her name. For days as they worked, Jean watched him, and John could see the worry in her eyes. Sometimes she asked him what the matter was. Only thinking, he'd reply. And sometimes she would whir softly like an insect humming, 
her uplink reaching out to taste the connection between herself and the cloisters. Then she would freeze her graceful, sure movements, pause like a dancer waiting a cue. Then, with a look of determination on her face, return to what she was doing or sit on the ground for a moment, resting her head in her hands, making a sound to approximate a sigh. John watched all this in silence and hated himself just a little more. Yet he could not make himself give her the command. He could not betray his valley. One afternoon as they collected plants, Jean said, I know you're going to stay here. She said it so suddenly that John straightened, tense, and forgot for a moment how to breathe. I know you can't go back. Jean, I have to go back. I'm a missionary, and we've collected all the data. If you were going to give them the data, you'd have done it by now. John could think of nothing to say to this. It's all right, John. You are a human. One slender arm rose, described a precise arc to indicate the valley around them. This is where you belong. Don't say that, Jean. It's wrong. Humans left all this behind. We're, we're better than animals running in the forest. We're more than that now. Are you? She bent to examine the leaves of an ivy, plucked one up, and tucked it behind her ear. Are you better than that? Are you as good as my kind? Are you as perfect as creation? There was a hint of humor in her voice. She mocked him, but fondly. Could you make any sacrifice, John, for the thing you love most? He watched her eyes, hoping to read her real meaning there. Her pupils clicked shut and open again. Taking a picture of him for her memory banks. What could she possibly wish to recall about this moment later? The shame that flushed John's face, or simply the image of him standing in his habitat? The natural history of man. Late in the afternoon, the wind turned fast and damp. Low clouds thickened the sky. The air smelled of thunder. There were six miles at least from the cabin. There's a small cave up the hillside there, John said, pointing to the woods. Let's take shelter there until the storm passes. It was easy enough to find the shallow cave. John had been there several times this summer. The remnants of his most recent fire still lay neatly at the cave's mouth. John shredded a page from one of his notebooks for tinder, and Jean struck the nest of paper alight. The blackened branches caught the fire, burning low and steady. On a bed of last year's sweet-smelling leaves, they lay down together, warm and relaxed. They said nothing for hours, resting against the earth while the rain hissed in the woods outside. Jean stroked him, kissed him, and ran her hands through his hair, but said nothing. John was silent, too, filling up his memory banks with the image of her face as she lay beneath him, eyes half-closed, the ivy leaf still parting the hair above her ear. Filling himself with the sound of her, the electronic breath of her body. If he could fill himself with Jean until he burst, he would do it. He would. Her glacier-carved features, her grass-sweet skin. When they rolled away from each other, John exhausted and Jean happy, he saw that the fire was nearly dead. He rose, naked, to tend it. As he prodded the ashes back to life, he saw Jean wince, heard the murmur of her link. This time she sat up sharply and cried out. It's getting worse, John. They know we have something. They want the data. Her voice was thin with strain. I don't know how much longer I can keep it from them. The admission hurt her, John could see. She cradled her head in her hands, eyes closed tight. John crouched beside her, rocking her, comforting her. I'm sorry, Jean, I'm sorry. I've done this to you. I should have told you to send it long ago. No. Do it, Jean. Send the data. I can't watch them do this to you anymore. I can't do it, John. I can't. You love the valley. You know what they'll do to it when they come. I, I love you, too. You're my creation. I can't bear to see you in pain. Send the data. I won't. I can't. I can't go all my lifetime knowing I brought them here, John, knowing it's because of me that your valley is destroyed. You'll have acted on my orders. It's my decision. I am the missionary and you the companion. It's my choice. But all the while he soothed her, his heart ached. All the while he held her, he remembered running up the hillside through sun and shade, alive and human. Jean seemed to have control of herself now. She lay back on the leaves, pale skin on russet. We won't give them the data, John. I know it's what you really want. John shook his head. 
It's all right. Do it, John. No. But he reached for his pack. He took out the little toolkit, rolled in leather. It's all right, Jean said. We won't give it to them. They won't take it from me. They'll think something has happened to us. They'll just send more missionaries, and one of them will send the data. They'll have the ore soon or late. But they won't have it from you. Jean closed her eyes. You won't be a part of it, and neither will I. John sat still for a long time, watching the rain move in purple veils down the hill. Night was setting in. He unrolled the toolkit. He kissed Jean, a long kiss, filling his memory with the taste of her mouth. Then he lifted off her faceplate. The filaments of the network of herself steamed softly in the cool air of the cave. The steam rose up to brush his cheeks, his eyelids. When his tears fell into her, they cracked like pebbles in a fire. By morning, Jean was dismantled, packed into his straining rucksack. John bent under the burden. He left pieces of her along the ridge, tucked among the ivies, scattered among stones. In the thicket where he'd hidden to watch her, he placed her hillside legs. In the meadow where she'd collected flowers, he dropped her careful, gentle hands. He set her hair drifting on the breeze, a golden cloud swaying over the valley to be picked up and woven into the nests of birds. He buried the left eye in a meadow, her right beneath an oak. He pounded her memory board between two rocks until all of her memories shattered, fragments of reflected color, and scattered themselves among the river rocks. He hung her wires and pneumatics from the branches of trees where they drooped like Spanish moss, speaking in the wind with a faint voice like violins. As evening fell, John took the glowing core of her heart from his pack, splashed into the merced, and dropped it into the water. It wavered down, tilted away from him in the current, tottering out to the center of the river. But he could still see it glowing, a bright, inhuman blue like the acetylene torches in the cloisters. Its light broke and rebroke through the water's rush. His legs were numb with the cold. A crow called in the woods behind him and another answered from across the river. He backed toward the shore, groping with his feet. Trout began to rise to the evening's flies, shattering the light of Jean's heart into concentric rings. John's feet found the riverbank. He stood for a long time, staring at his companion where she lay, shining, in the heart of the river. His skin shivered to warm him. All the hairs of his body stood upright. When a deer appeared on the river's far shore, pausing in alarm at the sight of the blue glow, John turned back for the woods. His pack was empty now, and light. He tightened the straps around his shoulders. By the time he reached the hillside, he was running. this week thanks for tuning in today's episode featured the short story a light in the merced river written by yours truly if you enjoyed this podcast i hope you'll subscribe on your favorite podcatcher and if you listen on the apple podcasts app please take a minute to rate and review since that will upload the algorithm's data to my cloister and help me find more curious weirdos like you i would also appreciate it if you'd tell a friend about the podcast i'd love to see the audience grow and i need your help to do it the sound collage featured an interview with Ray Bradbury from the YouTube channel CUNY TV. Music included Telstar by The Tornadoes, License from Lick.co, and Unfolding Mirrors by Shane Ivers. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Oh, oh, oh.